begin um, is the last of the second main section in Amos' prophecy. Uh, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that there is this introductory section in the first uh, two and a half, three chapters where he's just naming all of the different, um, different nations who are under the Lord's wrath. Uh, and then this main section in the middle, chapters 3 through 6, deal with oracles. Uh, that means something spoken, a message that the Lord has given. And you see that several times throughout in the, the chapters that we've seen. You see it anchoring this chapter as well. Um, it begins chapter 6, verse 1, woe. This is speaking woe uh, and, uh, and uh, um, sorrow, really, um, warning the people that things are going to get pretty bad. Uh, but it's anchored by verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. He has said something. Uh, he declares, declares the Lord God of hosts. Um, and this is what anchors it all. This is another uh, of the Lord's oracles against the people. In chapter 7, we're going to begin to get into visions, uh, what Amos saw, not just what the Lord has said, but what he has shown. Uh, and, uh, and the poetry will give way. Uh, in some sense, to a, a visionary uh, sight of, uh, of what's ahead. Um, but uh, he's still concerned here with what the Lord has spoken against his people, and this speaking has been a, a foundation issue uh, in Amos thus far, uh, because we, we saw earlier that he began with the Lord roaring, and yet the people not listening to the roaring of the Lord. Uh, the Lord is roaring, who can but prophesy? The Lord roars, who shall, fe who shall not fear? Uh, and today, uh, we're going to see that the Lord continues to roar, and the people continue to go, meh. Uh, that's basically uh, what the Lord is taking them to task for today, that they are apathetic, they're spiritually apathetic, uh, that they are complacent, and the Lord is speaking, and they're having such a wonderful time in their life as they know it that they don't have time to listen to the Lord. They don't have time to hear what he has to say to them. They don't have time to be troubled by what the Lord has said or what uh, they see in society around them. And here, I think, is a good word for us. Uh, if there is uh, a lot of what we've seen in Amos already has, has been wholly applicable to American Christianity, but this, perhaps, uh, more than any other. Uh, you remember the, uh, uh, the statement, uh, Neil Postman, that we're amusing ourselves to death. This is what's happening in Israel. We'll see that in the first section today, uh, that they are simply engaging in amusements and fattening themselves for the slaughter, like we saw the cows of Bashan in chapter 3. So it is happening in chapter 6. There's a, a lack of concern uh, as the heart of the problem in chapter 6. They've grown complacent rather than trusting the Lord, rather than fearing him as they ought. They've trusted in themselves. They take no notice of God's command to love justice and mercy in the land that he's given them. And the Lord of hosts is about to shake them out of their idle indulgence. So this whole passage uh, breaks up into two big sections. Uh, nicely enough, uh, we can divide it right in half. So verses 1 through 7 is a statement of woe. Uh, the ESV is not a great translation in verse 4. In verse 4, the ESV starts all over again. Woe to those. Actually, there's only one word of woe. It shows up in verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. And then it goes on, and if you've got the King James or the NIV, they're pretty good because then it just begins this long list of the scriptures. Woe to those who do this and do that and do that and do that and do that. And it actually carries through the whole way through to, to verse 7. So that's one big main chunk. Woe and sorrow are coming to these people who are doing these sorts of things, and we'll look at that. And then beginning in verse 8, uh, the Lord God has sworn by himself, 
declares the Lord God of hosts. Um, and that last line there, I will deliver up the city and all that's in it. And then at the end, verse 14, behold, I will raise up against you a nation, the house of Israel, O house of Israel, uh, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Uh, and that is the Lord declaring what judgment will come upon his people. So we have sorrow that the Lord proclaims in verses 1 through 7, and we have judgment and destruction in verses 8 through 14. Now, uh, we're going to read together, but before we read, uh, let me open our time in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord God, sovereign Lord of hosts, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that through the prophet Amos, you have indeed roared. You, by your Holy Spirit, carried along Amos and other men like him, uh, and you spoke through them as you desired, and you had them as shepherds of your people. We thank you for this uh, shepherd for us in Amos, and we pray that we would be as obedient sheep to hear not only uh, Amos' words, but your words speaking through him. We pray that you would be the one who goes before us, who directs our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would make our hearts soft and pliable in your hands, that we would be uh, responsive and, uh, and receptive to your word, that we would not harden our hearts for the day of destruction. We pray that we would not turn aside and be uh, unfeeling uh, like fat and, uh, and those that um, fill themselves up uh, for the day of wrath. But, oh, Lord, we pray that you would make our consciences tender before you. We pray that you would help us to see also Jesus Christ, our Savior, uh, who is the one who takes all the punishment that your people deserve, for you have laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he is the one who bears it away, so that we can be declared righteous in your sight. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we are a new creation, that your law is written on our hearts, and not only in tablets of stone. And so we pray that you would take your law and, and put it deep within us, uh, that you would teach us, that we would have no need to uh, go to someone else and say, tell us about the Lord, because we would already know you. We pray that you would teach us your ways and your precepts. We pray that we would learn Christ this morning, and that learning him, we would abound in true righteousness and holiness, that you would build us up in love for every good work, that we would be your workmanship, and that you would be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here now God's word as we find it in Amos chapter 6. <clears throat> Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves in instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house 
and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you've turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Thus ends the word of God. Uh, may he bless his reading and his hearing. Now, we begin in this first section where the Lord is uh, pronouncing a woe upon his people. Uh, and there is a change here. Notice uh, that we are bringing back in both the northern and the southern kingdom. This is something we haven't seen since chapter 2. Uh, but the Lord is saying that there is something wrong. Uh, and what is wrong is those who are at ease and those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. And here's why uh, I think this is a, a prophecy for our time. Um, is anything better in the eyes of our culture than a little bit of ease and a little bit of security? Isn't it great, and isn't it what we're all searching for, that we can have a life where things uh, just go well with us, and we don't have to worry about what might happen, and we don't have to, uh, you know, if you can live in that quintessential little town with your picket fence where you don't have to lock your doors at night, and it's so wonderful that you don't have to worry about things going wrong, this is what we idolize, this is what we want, uh, a little bit of rest. Now, um, of course, uh, there is something good in Scripture about rest and ease, even, and security, that's not a bad thing. That's one of the ways that the Lord uh, declares his, uh, his blessings upon his people. Uh, I want to ask a few people to grab some scriptures if I could. I need three volunteers. Ronnie, I'm going to ask you to get Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 and 30. Tim, I'm going to ask you to get Leviticus 29. Uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus 25, verses 19 through 21. And I need one more. Meredith, thank you. Very bold on your first visit. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. So we've got Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Leviticus 25, 19 to 21, and Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 11. Ronnie, why don't you get us started with Matthew 11? Okay, so there we have Christ himself. This is a sign of blessing, that we should know him, that we should come to him, and that he should give us rest. He, he, I think he's talking of a spiritual rest here, uh, but he is saying this is what it looks like to come to Christ and to know him. It looks like, uh, it looks like rest. He says, my yoke is easy. It is easy if you hitch yourself to me because I'm going to do the lion's share of the work or the oxen's share of the work, I suppose, uh, and my burden is light. And so when you're with me, uh, spiritually speaking, things go well for you. There is a security. Okay, now this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. We've got Leviticus 25, 19 to 21. So what's the context of this passage, Tim? 
the year of Jubilee. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. And here's something that no nation has ever had. And, and he deals with these questions that when we come into the land, this is Leviticus, and he's telling them, here's what life will be like in the land where I send you. And they're thinking, when we come into the land, how on earth could we possibly not work on the seventh, a whole year, we're an agricultural society, a whole year with no harvesting, no sowing, no, no reaping, none of this stuff, what are we going to do? And the Lord says, I'll give you enough, don't worry about it. Every seven years, you're going to have a sabbatical year. You can take the whole year off. Attend to other things that are really important because, at least speaking of your work and feeding your family, things will be easy. You'll be secure, and you won't have to worry about it. You don't have to deal with these fears of what will happen to us. Great. Now, we see it also in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Thank you. Uh, so this is speaking of uh, the rest that the Lord was talking about in the land, such as the Jubilee year, uh, was really only a precursor, and it didn't, take, uh, it didn't take root, because we see later that the people didn't keep the Jubilee because they got greedy. Uh, we saw that they were taken away from the land in which they enjoyed so many blessings, and in Hebrews, he's telling them they didn't actually get rest. Joshua didn't give them rest. The first Joshua didn't give them rest, but there is a new Joshua, and there's a new rest coming. There remains. It's yet to be seen. It's still in the future, and so we get this idea that, that eternity with God is rest and ease, and that's a good thing, and there's a security with the Lord, and it might seem like an obvious question, <clears throat> but what separates the good kind of rest and ease that the Lord says will be for his people from the kind of ease and security that he's talking about here, which draws the condemnation of the Lord. What separates those two? The, the kind that the, we should be looking for, and the kind that the Lord says speaks of his salvation, and the kind that draws his condemnation. Ronnie? Okay. <clears throat> So it's a, it's a matter of who you're trusting, okay? So you could be doing exactly the same thing outwardly, laying on a couch, um, eating fattened calves and all that sort of thing that he talks about in Amos 6, and as long as you're trusting in the Lord, as long as you've got that covered, then things are okay. Okay? One thought? Tim? Yeah. Yeah, and so it, it is, uh, I think, a combination of both of these, and, and probably a little bit more. Um, I think our gratitude to the Lord will be expressed in different ways. What he, I'm, I'm sorry, Ronnie, that was a bit of a trick question, <coughs> earlier, or, or painting it in the wrong light um, for, a, for a rhetorical purpose, I suppose. Um, but what he, what he describes later, um, all of these things, they eat uh, the calves in the midst of the stall, they drink wine in bowls. This is obviously not a good thing. This is, this is an idle sort of rest. This is a, a rest that is, that is an indulgent sort of rest, almost a, uh, uh, an overly opulent. I mean, this is just wasteful, wasteful rest and ease. Um, but I, I think this, this trust and, um, and gratitude, says Tim, uh, will express itself in a different kind of resting. 
this is a good thing to, to think about. Just a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at Jesus talking about the Sabbath and the way that a lot of folks, when they become convinced of what a Sabbath rest is, there's this progression. And I think sometimes you, you, you get this. There, um, I, I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in others that when you become convinced of the Sabbath, what it starts with is almost a legalistic sort of, well, here's, here's what I can't do. Um, and then when that legalism gets broken by the grace of the Lord, uh, sometimes it can become a sort of, I don't have to do anything. This is great. The Sabbath is wonderful. I can just indulge myself, and it's a day for me. It's a day for just enjoying. But the really sanctified view of it, of it is, yes, to keep that Sabbath rest, to keep it as, as it ought to be, but to use it for its right purposes, not for indulgence, uh, not to say, well, you know, Sunday night, I don't have anything to do. I lay on my couch and drink wine by the bowlful and, and have a big feast and all these other things. Uh, that is not faithful either. That's not a faithful rest, and, and that's a perversion of what this rest was supposed to be. And so the Lord is coming against these people, both in uh, Zion in the south who are at ease and those in the north who feel secure. And he's saying, yeah, these are good things in and of themselves, but you've so perverted them for your own ends and the, and the foundation of why you're going after them is so wrong that it's actually something that's worthy of condemnation. Chris? Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to zero in on one of the statements that you made right in the middle of that, um, that what the Lord wants is the heart. I think that's right on track with what he's calling um, the people of, of Israel to account here, that what he didn't have was their heart. Now, their worship, when, when you actually think about it, was abundant. And it seems rather sincere. They really worshiped in sincerity. They, they didn't they worshipped uh, wrongly in many ways, but they were really sincere about their worship. Um, but just the outward sincerity, the going through all of the, the motions and, and abundant sacrifices, isn't what the Lord was after. The Lord wanted their heart. Now, that is a double-edged sword because that also means that the Lord is able to judge the heart. And when, when you get uh, to passages like Amos, he says, here's what's wrong with you. You're at ease and you're feeling secure and we say, but that's a good thing. He says, yeah, but your heart is in the wrong place. And the Savior does the same thing when he shows up in Matthew chapter 5. And he says, you've heard it said that you ought not to kill your brother. But I tell you that if you even hate him in your heart, if you say, you empty head, raka, uh, in your heart, if you're angry with him, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So we're dealing with the Lord who wants the heart of his people. We're also dealing with the Lord who judges the heart of his people and judges the intentions. Jeremiah chapter 7 uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17, uh, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, and who can know it? And then right after that, but the Lord tests the mind and the heart to give each man according to his ways. Um, and so the Lord sees beyond our facade, and the Lord sees beyond our false righteousness to see what's really going on in our heart. Um, and so th this is a, a question of the Lord judges the motivation as well. And so it, it shows us, if anything, that our problem in sin is much deeper than are you doing the right things. It's also are you loving the right things, are you desiring the right things, are you striving for the right things. And when we see our sin as that deep, we automatically see it, or we ought to see it, as something that goes beyond what we can change. You know, you can, you can keep yourself in order, in line, pretty much. Most of the time you can do the right thing. This is uh, why a hardline parental discipline works so well for some kids. You can get them to shape up and sit up straight and say the right things, but that doesn't mean that their heart is in the right place. Uh, but the Lord is the one who doesn't just say, you know what, I want you to shape up. He says, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to write my law upon your heart. I'm going to give you new desires and, and new affections, uh, and it's going to be deeper than you can reorient yourself. And I think this is some of what Amos is preparing us for. Good. Now, there are a lot of... Uh, cross-references that we're going to skip on so we can, uh, we can get on here. But um, it, it's worth thinking, well, what exactly were Zion and Samaria at ease and feeling secure over? And it was really the, the advantages that the Lord had given them. I encourage you to read later Jeremiah chapter 7 where uh, Jeremiah talks about the people in Judah. Uh, and the people in Judah were entering into Jerusalem with their hands full of unrighteousness and injustice and saying... We have the temple of the Lord. Everything's okay because we have the temple of the Lord. And this is actually where Christ in the New Testament picks up the line uh, that the, uh, the temple of the Lord has become a brood, a den of vipers. Um, you know, the place where the vipers are secure, where they get together with their other viper friends uh, and nobody comes to harm them. Well, the people of Israel were coming into the temple and saying, we've got the temple, we're fine. And so you're at ease in Jerusalem because the Lord has given you a real advantage. That's a real thing. Uh, later in that same chapter, he, uh, uh, he condemns them uh, soundly for that. Um, but then we think about Samaria. Their advantage was the topography of the land. Notice it doesn't say the mountains. 
We're not talking about a region. We're talking about the mountain of Samaria. That is the, the hill on which the city uh, set. And it was this citadel fortress, basically this natural hill with very steep sides. Uh, and it was so tall that you couldn't easily overthrow it, although Assyria did eventually. Um, and it was this sort of place where you could come in and say, look at what we have. Nobody can touch us. And so even these good things, the Lord gave them this beautiful land. He, he commanded the temple. He put his name there. These were advantages from the Lord. And yet the people were growing complacent because of the things that they had. And they were growing prideful. I think it is a um, sort of ironic hyperbole. The notable men of the first of the nations. Oh, you're the best, aren't you? Uh, you're just doing so well. And, and you think so highly of yourselves. Uh, I think that's supposed to be ironic. And in fact, that, uh, that word first there becomes the buzzword later um, because it carries through, it begins. They think themselves, the, the notable men, the high men of the first of the nations, um, and, the, and then it follows through. Later, they anoint themselves with the finest oils, really the first oils, uh, and then later, uh, they will be the first to go into exile. So the book ends, you think you're doing really well and you're at ease and you're proud of yourself. Uh, but there is this retributive justice that the Lord is bringing you into exile, and this is what's going to happen. He's going to take them away, and he's going to shatter their pride. All right. Uh, so we keep going here, and um, we get this, this line, um, verse 3, O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Uh, the day of disaster there, the, the word really is evil. Uh, the day of evil, but I think the, uh, the ESV has, has done us a solid here uh, because in our minds normally this word evil has sort of demonic connotations, uh, that it's always connected with the minions of Satan, uh, but this is an evil I think that's coming from the Lord. Uh, it's a disaster, it's, it's calamity. Uh, we see the same line, or the same word really, in Isaiah 45, uh, verse 7, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness, I make well-being and create calamity, or you could translate it evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord uh, is not worried that we might think that he is this, uh, this vengeful God. He says, where does calamity come from? It comes from my hand, and don't you forget it. Uh, he, he doesn't let his, his people think, well, there, there are certain areas that the Lord is in control of, and then when calamity strikes, oh, I don't know, that's, that's coming from somewhere else entirely. No, the Lord says, I create good and light, and I create, uh, I make well-being, and I create calamity, or, or we could even translate it evil. Now, we see it also in Jeremiah chapter 17. Um, it says, be not a terror to me, you are my refuge in the day of disaster. Same phrase that we see in Amos verse 3, the day of disaster or the day of evil. He says, be not a terror to me, you are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. But let me not be put to shame, let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster, destroy them with double destruction. So the, uh, the prophet there is, uh, is praying, sort of the, the mouth of the people. Uh, he's, he's mimicking their prayers to the Lord. Uh, they're praying for the day of destruction on someone else. Now we ended chapter 5, woe to you who look for the day of the Lord. You think that the day of the Lord will be great because you think it's a day of disaster for them. Uh, and here we have, uh, you put away the day of disaster. It's not going to come to you. It, it will have nothing to do with you. 
but actually what it leads to is bringing near the seat of violence, and there's this exchange, that iniquities increase the more we stuff away the reality of God's judgment. Oh, no, 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 judgment comes to others, uh, and so we're at ease, we are secure, because the Lord will bring this day of calamity on other people, but surely it won't come to us because we've got the temple, because we've got Samaria, because we've got the military strongholds, because things are going so well for us. And isn't that what we all want? We want to imagine uh, that we are not going to deal with uh, the day of judgment. So this is the day of, uh, of the Lord's judgment, I think, the, the day that the Lord has spoken of in the previous chapter. Um, so let, let's take a look at some of the repercussions here. Uh, what happens when we put away the reality of judgment? What is the effect that it has upon us? And we see it in, in that long list. He begins to, to list. Here's what you do. You begin by putting away the day of disaster, and then you bring near the seat of violence. You lie on beds of ivory. What are some of the effects, some of the changes that happen when we put away the reality of God's judgment? That's really the punchline at the end of this, um, which is exactly where he's going. Um, and and it, is, it is sort of the twisting of the knife. In verses 3 uh, through 5, uh, the, the Lord is sort of stabbing the knife uh, deeper and deeper. And then when you get to the end and you're not grieved by Joseph, that's the real catch. Because that is, is if we could put it that way, that's the thorn in the Lord's side. Not just that they do all of these things, and, and really he's talking about indulgence here, uh, but they're so full of indulgence that they're not grieved with the ruin that happens among the people. That they're so full of chasing after uh, amusements and indulgences and entertainments and food and drink and song and all these other things that they don't even care about what goes on. Tim? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, so it has the effect when we put off the day of judgment, um, the Lord's judgment upon people, uh, Amos is suggesting that it actually makes us less compassionate. Um, this is not what many people want to tell us. Many people want to claim that Christians are ignorant because we're just waiting for God to show up and put everything to rights, and so that means that Christians don't care about what other people are suffering in the world. I think this is, this is patently false. Um, you, you know, what you see in, in, you know, throughout history is that Christians are the ones who are at the forefront of caring for those who have no one else to care for. In many societies throughout, throughout history, uh, you know, uh, charitable efforts are led by the church, are led by uh, those that have been touched with the reality of judgment and righteousness. One of the complaints against the church in the early days is that the church was full of women instead of men to lead the church. And the church was full of women because the church was uh, the group that was going out and gathering the female babies who were being abandoned in the society. 
And then they were raising them. And so, yeah, the church is full of women because uh, the couple would have a daughter and they would just expose her and the Christians would come along and they would collect them. And they would have nursing mothers to, to feed these babies and to raise them and they became part of the church. Yeah, the, the you know, uh, but these are the people that are concerned with judgment and righteousness and all these things and they're the, the most compassionate in the society. Uh, they were the ones when, uh, when Rome was, was burning that stayed behind to care for the sick and for the dying. You know, they're the ones that, that you, could, you could multiply examples throughout church history. That doesn't mean that every individual Christian is the most charitable person you will ever meet because there are com- some pretty stingy Christians as well, uh, and I might be one of them. Uh, but uh, by and large, there is this, there's this correlation. When you put off the reality of righteousness and judgment, it actually makes oppressing other people a lot easier. Notice that correlation in verse 3. You put far away the day of disaster, and you bring near the seat of violence. The seat there is really throne. Um, the, the idea of here's how you rule the people. Again, this harkens back to chapter 5, uh, this idea of violence in the gate. Um, where is it? Chapter 5, verse 11, there because, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, uh, you planted pleasant vineyards, uh, and I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous, you take a bribe, you turn aside the needy at the gate. Uh, this, is how they, this is how they reign. Uh, when you don't think that the Lord will hold men to account, it makes it very easy to oppress others, uh, and it makes people much less compassionate for those who are around them. What are the other effects that we see in this series of descriptions? Yeah, Cynthia. Yeah. Um, for, the, for the average Israelite, yes. Now, you see very often in Scripture, kill the fattened calf. That's what this is. Uh, this is not the calf that is out in the, the field, uh, frolicking around and getting hardy. This is the one who's kept indoors, who's kept in a stall, who is fed. We would call it veal today. Um, so this is the fattened calf who is, who is kept for the special occasion. Um, and the lambs from the flock, yeah, you would, you would sometimes have meat, but the average Israelite would only eat meat on the feast days. And that was a, an important part of the feast days. It was a picture of God's uh, bounty for his people that you would bring the lamb, you would slaughter it, and a portion of it would go to the priests and the Levites who were serving the Lord, but the rest of it would go back to the family. Think of the Passover. Each of you is to go and to gather a lamb, and, and for many people, many peasants of the day, that would be exorbitant almost. We have to, we have to what? We have to buy a whole lamb. And so you get together with a few other families, and you go in on it together, and you get a lamb, and and one of the few times a year that you have meat. Wow. Uh, so there's a gluttony, but there's, there's almost an overabundance here. Uh, there is, uh, the way that it's set up, it's almost portraying this is your regular practice. This is what you do. Uh, throw caution to the wind. Live life large. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen an episode of Cribs, or uh, you could go back farther, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Uh, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. This is, this is the picture here. Um, and it's just sort of wasteful indulgence and opulence. Yeah. 
Interestingly enough, I think that's also tied to this idea of putting off the day of, uh, the day of disaster, that we will not be called into account. Uh, because what you see and what he's already discussed here um, in the previous chapters is not just that the people are indulging themselves, but they're indulging themselves at the, at the um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, at the expense, thank you, at the expense of the poor in the land. So the, uh, the poor being oppressed. And it's, it's not because, oh, it's a time of warfare, it's a time of hardship, we've got to tighten our belts. It's because those who have the means are really living it up and don't care about the poor in the land. Anything else? They listen to bad music. Yeah, oh, I, I bet it is. Uh, they're idle songs, and he compares them, notice, to David, the psalmist, um, who, again, we've got a good thing, music and instruments, and David is acclaimed throughout the Old Testament. You know, he's saying, you style yourselves as another David, but it's, it's trash. <laughs> it's, it's worthless music. It's just idleness. Uh, you're just amusing yourselves, and there's no point in it. Uh, there's something to be said for, uh, for listening to good music and especially singing good music unto the Lord and, and praising him, but just this sort of constant background chatter where, you know, you're just sort of going through life and you know, this is what they're doing. Uh, and, and I think it is this, it's this uh, compounding. I, I think the whole thing works together. It shows us a sort of feast. Um, they bring near the seat first. And then they lie on couches. That word lie really is to recline at tables. Um, and then, uh, what's the next one? They lie on couches and then they stretch themselves out. Oh, this is, this is doing the starfish, right? Um, they're, they're just stretching themselves out upon their beds. And it, it's this sort of downward slide into judgment and feasting and this sort of you know, just sort of passed out. They, they've drunk wine by the bowl full. They're just indulging. It is, it is you know, this picture of, uh, of an indulgent party gone wrong. Uh, and, and that's what it looks like. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Um, this, this idea that this is all there is. Uh, it's not a day of disaster. It's not a day of judgment. But let's indulge ourselves because this is all we have. Uh, and this is what the Lord has given us even uh, and isn't it great to be able to enjoy good things? Uh, and these good uh, gifts that the Lord has given uh, are, not to be meant, are not meant to be used this way. Okay. Anything else? Uh, what kind of ruin do you think the prophet's speaking about? They're not grieved over the, over the ruin of Joseph. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Tim? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think uh, some of it is, is maybe judgmental ruin. Uh, some of it is the poverty of the people who are all around them. Uh, some, of them some of it is the, the spiritual ruin, uh, that they just give themselves into whatever indulgence they want, um, yeah. Now this idea, we've seen it already, the, the first idea, this buzzword, you, will, you believe yourselves to be first and you're going to be the first to go away uh, into uh, judgment. There's this retributive justice idea. Um, 
makes me think of Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Uh, Paul writes, because, you are, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You've got this idea here that, uh, that what you spend your days doing uh, will come back to you. If you're seeking yourself, you will be left with yourself, uh, and you will be taken away from God's blessing, and you will receive only his wrath. Scott? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're the, uh, what does it say, the notable men of the first of the nations. Now, maybe the poor will be taken away. Uh, they'll go work in a mine somewhere, but we're, we're too good for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck with that. See how that works out for you. Good. How would you apply this to our contemporary culture? If someone were to say to you, hey, I've been reading Amos. It uh, seems to, to prick my conscience a little bit. W what should I take away from Amos for American culture, American Christian culture, perhaps? Where does it touch us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're well off, and is that being well off in itself a bad thing? No, we've talked about that. Um, but it's a question of the heart. And it's a question of caring for those who have no one else to care for them. If we are well off at the expense of the poor, and if we are well off at the expense of those who are, you think about the persecuted church around the world, and we have means to help, well, that's a big uh, international um, sort of problems that, that individually we probably can't wrap our minds around. Uh, but think about the ways that, uh, that we ought to be grieved over the ruin of God's people and grieved over the ruin of our society. And if, if we're just sort of going along and things are going well for me, so I don't need to worry about that. This is exactly what Amos is talking about. Yeah. Meredith? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a good application, too. We, we don't need to take this and say, well, uh, if the Lord wants us to be grieved, we have to spend our days in nothing but grieving over the, the situation. But there, there really is a rest. There's a spiritual rest in the Lord uh, where we can apply ourselves to helping those uh, who are in need, uh, but also giving it up to him and saying, I'm, I'm not anybody's savior. I'm called to help. I'm called to give. Uh, you know, woe to you who... Uh, uh, who have 
uh, when somebody else is in need and, and refuse to give it. But, um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be swooping in and, and saving anybody. And you can, you can give that to the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Teresa. Yeah. Even us, Teresa? Even, even us nice, well-to-do Christians in America? Or is there, is there, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the problem of Israel in Amos' day is they were sitting saying, not us. We're doing well, and God loves us because we're in this land that is so blessed. Well, God loves us in Christ Jesus. He's rescued us out of sin, and he's given us a law of love to bear with one another's burdens. And if he has not, then we're still in darkness. And then there really is judgment. And so either we we take the the law and the gospel and the burdens of our fellow Christians, uh, or we ignore them and we are still in judgment because we have nothing to do with Christ, because we have nothing to do with his body. That might be a a, a longer uh, discussion, but uh, yeah, Chris. And I think one of the particular dangers in our circles, um, sort of conservative, uh, reformed Christian circles, is that we can see what's going on in the culture and we can, we can see this sort of social justice thing and we can want to swing the pendulum so far in the other direction that we miss that there is a real kernel of concern underneath of that, even if it's approached in completely the wrong way, that we ought to be concerned with some of these things and those who are poor and oppressed. I mean, look throughout the Old Testament, you will see three categories the Lord cares for. The poor, I'm sorry, the the fatherless, uh, the widow, and the foreigner. You see those three repeated over and over and over again. And if at any point conservative, reformed Christians can say, I don't want anything to do with those other people, so I won't care about the fatherless, the widow, or the foreigner, we're on the wrong track. Um, and and we, can, we can debate as to what the proper way to do that is, uh, but if we are coming at it with a complete lack of concern, that is worthy of judgment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And walk humbly with your God. Absolutely. So if you're going to be careful, 
Good. Uh, thank you. Well, we've got half of the, uh, the passage left and about a minute. Um, so I may have successfully dodged this really strange passage in verses 9 and 10. What is going on in verses 9 and 10? Uh, I'll give you a heads up. I, I don't know exactly, and many commentators don't know exactly either. But I think we can get a, a, a pretty good idea. Uh, the Lord hates the pride of Jacob and his strongholds. We've seen that before. Uh, chapter 1 opened up with a, uh, a commentary against all the nations. The Lord is going to bring disaster on this stronghold and that stronghold and that stronghold and the other stronghold. And when you get to uh, I, Israel in chapter 3, their stronghold, where the people should have been secure, was full of violence. And so the Lord is going to tear down theirs as well. And he says, you're full of violence, you're full of pride, and I hate it. Uh, and I'm going to deliver up the city and all that's in it. And then this, if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And somebody's relative uh, will tell him, don't even mention the name of the Lord. What is happening here? Ronnie. Yeah, I think that is, that's the real nub of it. Um, so the situation is hard to work through, but at the end, there is an acknowledgement that God is behind whatever is happening. And how vastly different that is uh, than verse 3, you put far away the day of disaster. Oh, no, 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 the Lord won't come against us. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring a disaster against you that will be such that you will not be able to avoid the reality uh, that the Lord is behind this. It will be recognizable. It will be something that just startles you with, with how uh, destructive it is, and you'll say, this couldn't come from anyone else but from the Lord himself. I think that's what's, what's really happening here. Now, the, the situation, um, I think it's, it's just trying to show us this complete destruction, even if there's... Uh, ten men remaining in one house. Now, house is the buzzword for the second section. It goes through from verse 9 uh, to uh, the end in verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel. So we're talking about maybe not necessarily just a dwelling, um, although here there's clearly someone entering into a house and calling into a house, and there are people inside of a house. But, but in a larger sense, the Lord is declaring judgment against families, against people groups, against the whole house of Israel. Uh, and so there's a larger picture here, and I think in verses 9 and 10, uh, it's showing us that the Lord is bringing complete destruction, complete obliteration uh, on some of these families, some of these, some of these households. Um, anybody else have a different translation? Um, it says, one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring out the bones. Does anybody else have a different translation there in that second half of verse 9? And if so, what do you have? King James, what do we got? Uh, verse 9, dealing with the relative, the uncle. Um, I'm sorry, verse 10. I'm sorry, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in the ESV, it's the one who takes up the bones for burial, 
Uh, a more literal translation is the one who burned him. Um, and there's some debate as to what this really is. Uh, normally, Israelites did not burn bodies. There are a couple cases when they would burn bodies. One case is when there was a plague, and they were worried about the plague spreading to other people. And so perhaps this is the undeniable judgment that the Lord is talking about. There will be a plague that will be so destructive that you'll have to say this couldn't have come from anyone else but from the Lord. It could also be judgment for sin, that sometimes sinners uh, who were wicked, wicked men were taken and their bodies were burned so that there was no remnant of them. And it could be one of those two ideas, this idea that, uh, that you're, someone will come in and burn them. Um, and he'll enter the house and say, is there anyone with you? And even the last man standing will say, no, everything is gone. And then there's that, that uh, realization that it's the Lord. Don't even, don't even mention his name. Don't even say it out loud, because if you do, it might draw his attention. He might come uh, and bring something even worse. And even those who are left to burn the bodies will be taken away. Uh, they're just, just complete, complete destruction. Okay. Um, well, that's about all the time we have today. Uh, what we need to see in this, this second section, really, um, is this idea of, of complete destruction that the Lord is bringing against them, uh, the things that the Lord hates. Uh, he hates their indulgence, their opulence. He hates their, their military strongholds and all of their pride in them. And he hates even the advantages that we have in this life if they take us away from trusting in him and get us to trusting in ourselves. A good parallel here would be James. The Lord opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. It is a fearful thing to be on the receiving end of God's opposition. And this is what the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, that the proud receive, the proud receive enmity with God, and we receive the opposition of the Lord. And so the calling here is to be humble, to be humble under the Lord's hand, to listen to his word, to cast yourself upon Christ in whom there is real rest and ease, but also to listen to what he calls us to. Right, to follow him and to allow him to expose our sin, not to be uh, so complacent that we say, there's no judgment, there's nothing coming, there's, there's nothing to worry about, uh, but to say there is something to worry about, which is why the Lord has sent Jesus Christ, and in him there is peace, and in him there is rest. That's the calling here, uh, and even in this very dark chapter, a calling for us to think uh, upon Jesus Christ and to look to him in faith. Uh, let me pray, and then we will uh, we'll close. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would soften our hearts, even as we began uh, praying. We pray that you would give us righteousness and holiness in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our sanctification and our truth and our holiness. We pray that our boast would not be in ourselves, that our boast would not even be in any of the gifts that you have given us. We pray that our boast would be in Jesus Christ and in him, uh, the one that you have chosen, and we are chosen in him to receive your love, and to be raised up on the last day. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts soft. We pray that you would give us a message to speak uh, to a world that lies in ruins. We pray that you would keep us uh, compassionate, compassionate enough to speak your message to a world that lies in theological and in spiritual ruin. And so keep us as your people and your ambassadors in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.